Well, good morning, folks. Um, I may say thank you very much for having me this morning. It's wonderful to be here uh, with you, to be able to worship God uh, together and to, to open His Word together. If you have your Bibles there, if you want to turn with me to Psalm 87. Psalm 87, we're going to read that just now, and that's going to be our focus for this morning. Thinking, um, I wonder, is it going to come up on the screen just yet? Cheers. Thinking a little bit on the glory of the church. Let me get it open here just. There we are. Lovely. So Psalm 87, and it says this. Of the sons of Korah, a psalm, a song. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush. And will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord, we come before you this morning looking to you that you might prepare our hearts for your word. We come to you in utter dependence, knowing that apart from you, we can do nothing. There's no merit we can gain, no effort we can make that will give us any benefit apart from the work of your Spirit. And so we ask of you, Lord, that you might give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and eyes to see beautiful and wonderful things in your Word. We pray that, that by the preaching of this psalm, we might see a fresh view of the glory of who you are, the great King of kings, the glory of what you've done in your work of redemption, and the glory of the church, your people. We pray that, that, that you would give me the words to say, that your, your word might be faithfully proclaimed for, for our good and for your glory. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder this morning, how do we view the church? When you think about church, what, what are the first thoughts that come to your mind? We live in a world today that has a lot to say about the church, a lot to say about what it's like, what they think of it. People will say, you know, the church is bigoted. The church is homophobic. It's misogynistic. It perpetuates hate. It's outdated. It's old-fashioned. It's a relic of a bygone era. It's irrelevant. It's insignificant. And it's obsolete. That's the claim of many in our culture today. When, when they think of the church, that's what they have to say. Nothing but negative things. But what I want us to think about this morning is, well, is that really true of the church? Is, is the claim of our culture a real uh, and uh, viable claim about the nature of the church? Or is there something that they're missing? I think the message of this psalm says something very different 
about the church. It speaks of the church as glorious, as, as, as a beautiful gathering of people, a great work of God. It's something to be celebrated. This psalm is a song of glory. It's the glory of the city of Zion. Unlike other psalms of its kind, it doesn't celebrate the subjection of the nations surrounding Israel. It doesn't celebrate their judgment as, uh, as they fall to, to, to their foolishness, but instead it rejoices in their salvation. It's a song of rejoicing as people are brought in from outside. People who are far off are brought into the people of God. They're welcomed and they're called children of God, citizens of Zion. It rejoices in salvation and it speaks of the great work of God. Scholars, when they try and place the psalm, find it hard to, to say when exactly it might have been written, what context it was written in. They, they, they question over whether it might have been an exilic psalm or a post-exilic psalm. But what they sort of agree on is that it was likely written at a time when the city of God was struggling, when it had little or no glory among the nations, when things looked bleak for God's people. And so in that situation, it was a song then to remember the work that God was doing, a song to remind the people of the beauty that there is in Zion, the beauty that there is in the church, the glory of what God was going to do. It's worth our noting uh, that in the words of C.H. Bullock, the historical realities of the Old Testament, so that's when we read this psalm, we're looking at Zion, the historical uh, realities of the Old Testament often become the spiritual realities of the new, and this is such an instance. So when we read this psalm, we're reading about Zion, but we're really looking forward to the church as well. It's not just a story or a psalm, sorry, about a historical city, but it's, it's a psalm of the beauty of God's people through all the ages, of the work of redemption that God's doing through all of history. And so as we come this morning, it's a psalm to encourage us today as we find ourselves in a culture that doesn't have a lot of good things to say about the church. We come with God's word, which is great and beautiful things to say about his people. So our first point that I think, I think the first lesson we draw from this psalm is this, if I get up here, focus on God the founder. First and foremost, above all else, focus on God the founder. Now that might seem obvious. That might seem, yeah, of course, when we think about the church, we've got to think about God. But the glory of the church above all else, first and foremost, comes from the one who has established her. The church is glorious because it's the church of God. It's been established by God. It's his work that he's doing. Verse 1 begins, he has founded his city. God has set her up. Zion, another name for Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. It's the city of God, the city where his temple is, where the, the glory of God dwells among his people. It wasn't the greatest of all cities by its own right. It wasn't because they were a mighty warrior nation, stronger than all others. It wasn't the mightiest because of its great power, but it was glorious because it was God's city. The Israelites had come to that place because God had brought them that far. 
because God had held them in his hand and supported them and taken them to the place that he had promised to them. They had had victories because God had established them, given power to them and had his hand upon them. All the glory that Israel had, all the glory of Zion was the glory given by God. He was the one who had began the work. And he was the one that maintained the work and is the one who maintains the work. And this is the case for the church today. We didn't grow out of random musings of 12 men by a lake one day. The disciples were were important. The apostles were, were, were foundational members in the founding of the church. But it was God that established the church. It was God that sent his son to make a way that sinners might come to know him. The church has been founded by the eternal decrees of God. He has laid her foundations. He has established her. And though the world has stood long in opposition and long tried to silence her, yet God has been faithful in preserving the church through the ages. The church is glorious because she has been set up by the great king of kings. But not only is she glorious because God has set her up and established her, but she's glorious because God loves her. Because he has set his love upon his church. Verse 2 says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. He didn't merely establish her, but he loves her. The one who holds all things in the universe holds dear his church. The city gates represent in a way, a small microcosm of the whole city. Yet, simply the gates where his people gather, he loves more than all the dwelling places, all their homes. And that's just one bit of the city. So how much more the whole does he love? He loves it when his people are together. He loves it when they are united. And as we'll come to, so it is by his grace that he brings them together. What a beautiful thing It is to know that as we gather here this morning to worship God together, God loves that. He loves it when his people come together, when they worship together. He loves his people and that is their glory because he says, I love you. Not their efforts, not our deeds, not all the things that we can do. It's not us standing up and preaching a hopefully a good sermon. It's not us singing the best songs and making beautiful music. It's the fact that God has chosen to love his people that makes them glorious. It's not the beautiful building that we have with the the intricate wooden arches. It's God's declaration that he loves his church. And thirdly, in verse three, it says, glorious things are said of you, city of God. She's glorious because it is God's city. He's established her, he loves her, and she belongs to him. She's held dearly in his hands and his name is upon her. That's the glory of the church. We ought to then set our love upon God as he has set his love upon us. To set our hearts and our aspirations upon him. Our desires are to be his desires. We must focus on him. Remember the one who has founded the church. Remember how he has established her, how he loves her. And that is our glory. 
I wonder if I was to, to bring one of my hobbies, one of the things I, I like to do is history. I'm a bit of a nerd in that way. I'm not really very smart in that way, but I like history. Um, but if I was to say to you about the Greek Empire, hopefully you've heard of it. If I was to say, who do we remember from the Greek Empire? We remember, hopefully, if you know anything about it, we remember Alexander the Great, the one who established the empire, the great leader who led the warriors out in their conquest of pretty much all of the known world at that time. A mighty warrior, a fearsome leader. By the age of 30, he had, he had led one of the, the largest empires the world had seen at that time, stretching all the way from Greece to the northwestern parts of India. So we remember him because he had established this mighty empire. He's the focus. Maybe more relevant to us today, I wonder if we considered some of the big companies in our world today. If I said Amazon, who's the first person that comes to mind when you think of Amazon? Probably Jeff Bezos, the one who founded it, who established it, who set it up and did the work that was required to make this great organization that gets us our parcels the next day. It's wonderful. I love it. If I said Tesla, you'd probably think of Elon Musk again, the one that set it up. But when we say the church, I wonder if God, the one who's established the church, is our focus, the one who comes straight to mind when we think of the church. When we see what God has done, how he has worked, how he's brought the church together, as we'll think about in a moment, our attention ought to be drawn to him. We ought to find that he is our focus, our worship. When we gather to sing praises, we're not gathering to, to sing beautiful songs together, though we do do that. We come to set our focus on God, to worship him for the great things that we've done. The gospel, it's not about us, though it is for us. It's about what God has done for his people. The church is formed by God and loved by God and belongs to God. That's what we ought to proclaim. I wonder, do we? When we proclaim the gospel, does the gospel that we proclaim have its roots in the work of God? Is he our focus? Do we say, wait till you hear what God has done? In our devotions, our quiet times, our Bible readings, and our prayers. I wonder how much time we spend thinking about the character of God. About who he is. The attributes of him. I think if we do that, we'll find that our faith is really encouraged. As we think of this high and holy and powerful God. And then as we go out into our day and we seek to live for him, we'll have great confidence to do so because we know the one who holds us. We'll find great benefit that our faith is more firmly founded when we look not to ourselves, but to the God who has established his church. He ought to be our focus. That's the first thing that comes out of Psalm 1. How unshakable is that city that is founded on the rock of ages? I wonder if God is our focus. The second thing that we see is that we should have confidence in his work. That's the second lesson. To, to know 
who it is we are, to know what it is God is doing, and to be sure that what he has said he will do, he absolutely will. The glory of the church consists not only in God finding her, but the diversity which with, he, which, with which, that's how you put that sentence together, with which he has blessed her, as he brings the far off, and the outsider is brought near. It's a beautiful thing. We come here this morning from many different backgrounds. Some have traveled further than others. Some have grown up in very different homes to others. Different families, different experiences. But we're all here together. And that's the beauty of the church. That God can bring all kinds of people together under one name. Christopher Ashe, commenting on Psalm 87, says that the glory of the church. He says, it is precisely it's non-homogeneity that is the fact that they're not all the same people. That is its glory. That's the picture we get when we read verses 4 to 6, isn't it? I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too and Tyre along with Cush. And we'll say this one was born in Zion. Indeed of Zion it will be said this one and that one were born in her and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples. This one was born in Zion. Verse 4. It lays out that relation of the people to Zion. Who do we see? Well we have Rahab. Now immediately we read that and probably our minds jump to Rahab the prostitute. And that's a good picture, but here Rahab is used as a poetic name for Egypt. It means pride or arrogance, sometimes violence and sometimes strength. And it's a fitting name for such a place as Egypt when we consider how firmly Pharaoh had stood against God and his people. He had set himself up as a god. There was no one greater than the Pharaoh in all of the world. When God called him then to set the people of Israel free, he said, no, I don't need to listen to such a God. I myself am like a God. And continually then he hardened his hearts, or his heart, singular, against the commands of God. And then even when finally he lets the people go, what does he do? He chases after them. He says, okay, I'm going to let you go. And then he changes his mind. He says, actually, what have I done? I'm bringing you back. And he pursues the people until they get to the sea. Egypt stood in the Old Testament as one of the great enemies of God. One of the great nations in opposition to God. Who else do we see? Well, we see Babylon as well. The great enemy of God. One of the greatest human powers that ever has been seen. A great city. And we remember Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, who, when he was told that his empire wouldn't last forever, that it would fall, and he had that dream of the great statue with all the different materials, his immediate response was to go out and to build a statue fully of gold, almost having been told by God, look, your empire won't last forever. He builds this statue and says, actually, I'll have you know my empire's going to last forever. He stands firm in opposition to God. It's a declaration of his own great might. 
The Babylonians were the ones who had carried off to exile the people of Israel. They defeated Jerusalem, carried off some of the vessels from the house of God. Belshazzar, later on, he used those vessels that were meant for the worship of God. He used those for his own party, his own vanity. Even in John's vision, recorded in the book of Revelation, Babylon is seen as the great enemy of God. Yet these enemies, as Psalm 87 looks forward, are said to be counted as those who acknowledge God. There's Philistia, idolaters, a constant thorn in the side of Israel for centuries causing trouble for the people of God. There's Tyre, the commercial metropolis, a wealthy trader city, never an enemy as such, but it tempted the people of God towards worldliness, towards material pleasures. And finally, we see Cush. Some translations render this as Ethiopia. It was a country far, far south of Israel. And I think we have a good picture of it in the book of Acts when Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch. It's a man who's traveled very, very far to come to, to, to hear of God and to worship him. Cush represents the most remote, the outsider, the one who is really, really far off, who doesn't seem in any way connected to God. Yet all these are said to know God. And as they know God, they're counted in the number of Zion. They're given new identities, a new home. Physically, they may come from many different backgrounds, but spiritually, spiritually, they are those who know God, who trust in him and who are brought near, who are brought in and called those born in Zion. Verse 5 then turns the view from the people to Zion and says that just as the people relate to Zion, so Zion relates to the people. It emphasizes the reality of these new identities. It's, just, it's not just an idea in the heads of these people that they've come in, but it is a firm new citizenship that they have. It's a solid identity, not just a human declaration, but as verse 6 notes, the Lord will write in the register of the peoples. This one was born in Zion. They receive God's stamp. They're sealed by him and he calls them his own. That's the great work that God's doing. Bringing in, gathering to himself and building his kingdom. And as we read this psalm, what we, what we see is that we can have confidence in the work that God is doing. I wonder this morning, do we see the great joy in that? Do we see the, the good news that that is for us today? This marvelous thing that we, who were once far off, who were lost, dead in our trespasses and sins, can have sure confidence that when we're trusting in God, that he has brought us near and we are counted as his own. We can say with Robert Murray McShane, I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Those friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree. Jehovah to Kenya was nothing to me. If we were outsiders, we were enemies to God, far off, not interested. Yet God, rich in mercy, 
and full of grace, sent his only son that we might be brought near. That we who were like Cush far away could come close. That we who were like Babylon, enemies to God, in rebellion against God, could be counted as his children. That Christ would die in our place, bearing the wrath that was ours. And that as he hung on the tree, he would cry out, it is finished. The work is done. All that we need is in him. God reached down to us in our lowly state and raised us up. I wonder if you have confidence in that this morning. If as you read through the pages of scripture, you are sure and you know that the God that you read of in scripture is the God of your salvation. That he is personal. One we can come to and we can call our father. And if we have that confidence, if our faith rests in Christ alone, we can be sure that we are part of that kingdom. And I wonder then, do we proclaim that good news, that hope to those around us? That we who were far off can be brought in and those else who are far off can also be brought in. That they can be called part of the people of God, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter their background, what they've done, they can be welcomed into. Do we preach that gospel of hope to our colleagues in work? Do we see that as somewhere to witness? Somewhere to, to sing the words of this psalm? To say that God is doing a great work bringing all kinds of people in and they can be part of that? Do we desire to see them brought in? Do we desire to see other people saved? To know God as the God of their salvation as well, just as he is of ours? I don't know where we'll find ourselves this week. But this I do know, and I am sure of, that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It's a message to be confident in. God is doing a work. He is building his kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing can stop him. Thirdly and finally then, rejoice together in God's work. Rejoice together. The glory of the church, it's seen firstly in God who has established her. It's secondly seen in the work that he's doing, bringing all kinds of people together and thirdly, the glory of the church is seen in the unity and blessing that there is within the church for her people. And so, as her people come together, they ought to celebrate. In verse 2, we see that, as we've mentioned, God loves the gathered church. We've thought about that somewhat already. It's a beautiful thing when the church is gathered together in the sight of God. But verse 7 then speaks of what it is as they come together, they sing, they make music, they say, all my fountains are in you. There's rejoicing among the people of God at the work of God. They come together and they celebrate all that God has done for them. The God of their salvation, the God of our salvation, we celebrate together. Spurgeon commenting on verse 7, he says, where God is there must be joy. And where the church is increased by numerous conversions, the joy becomes exuberant and finds cut ways 
of displaying itself. Now, when we read that, all my fountains are in you, speaking of the church, are we to say that the church somehow maintains herself? That, that we hold ourselves together? When the psalmist says of Zion, all my fountains are in you, does he mean that all our strength flows out of the church? Not quite, I don't think. Strength lies, as we've already said, in the one who has founded the city, the one who gives his strength to the church. It's in looking to him as they come together that the people find reason to celebrate. But as we do, we do come and find strength as we celebrate together, as we are united together as the people of God. It's not that the city is the joy, but the God of the city who has worked wonders, he causes the citizens to sing together. I wonder how we respond when we find that someone has something in common with us. How do we look at them? How do we view them? When someone begins to support the same sports team as we do, we welcome them in as family, don't we? They're one of us. You know, you're, you're a Liverpool fan, you see other Liverpool fans, you're the same. And Manchester United fans, well, they're just, they're abysmal. We don't, we don't like them. When someone, <laughs> when someone likes the same TV show as we do, that's what you want to talk about together. You want to, you know, share your opinions, what you've been watching in that show. The same chocolate, you want to share a bar of dairy milk with other people that like a bar of dairy milk and to enjoy it together or a book series or we could go on and name numerous other things but when we find people that we have things in common with there's a joy and excitement that we share together we celebrate that commonality we're excited about it think of the six nations i don't know anything that brings people together like the irish rugby team and 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 where where i live when ireland are playing suddenly it's like all these different people at church that they speak together now and again, but suddenly everyone's just like, oh, Ireland are playing today, are you watching Ireland? We're really excited to see Ireland win. I, nothing I know brings people together like the Irish rugby team, the pride and joy of our island. And they celebrate when they win. People are united when they win. But how much more, how much more are we to rejoice and celebrate when we come to church and we gather together and we consider what God has done for us? The church is to be a place where we find our commonality with others, that, that faith that we share with those around us. Look to your left and look to your right and see that those are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are people who know the experience that you know, that know that Christ has died for their sins, that they are forgiven and they are sure of their hope in heaven. That's who we are together as the family of God. If we're trusting in Christ, then we are brothers and sisters saved by grace and children of God according to his promises. We're from different backgrounds, yes, but we're all heirs of the kingdom through the work of Christ if we're trusting in him. We have a common faith, a common salvation. We don't sit here as individuals, but we sit here as part of a people. And when we sing, we sing of an experience that we have had where God has reached down and raised us up. When we come together, 
I wonder, do we celebrate these things? Is that why we are here together today? To celebrate what God has done. Our experiences in in different ways may differ, but we come before God to praise him and to thank him for what he has done for us. And we do that with other people who know the same as we do. The church is a special place. It's a glorious place. It's unlike anywhere else in the world. You can go to work and those people, they work the same job as you, but they don't have the same hope that you have necessarily. You can go to your sports team and they play the same sport as you and they love the same sport as you, but they don't necessarily have the same hope as you. But when we come to church, we come to meet with people who have the same hope as we have, all because of what Christ has done. It's one of the great purposes of gathering in churches to encourage one another. I wonder as we come, do we come united to remind each other that our fountain of life is not in ourselves, but it is in the one who has made us and set us free? Do we see gathering as the church as something that's important? Do we want to make sure that every week and as often as we can be among the people of God, that we are there and we are present and that we are focused on God and celebrating that together? Or is church something that we can just let slide and if we miss it, we miss it and that's okay. We can watch it on TV, listen to it on Spotify. Or do we make a conscious effort to gather with the people of God that we can worship together? So, as we close, I hope we see something of the glory of the church that's brought out in this psalm. The church is glorious. The church is beautiful, despite what the world around us might say. The church is glorious because she's founded by the great King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It is his church. Zion is the city of God. We have a relation to him. He declares our worth and he is to be the focus of our lives. As we go through our week, as we seek to live as God's people, how much time will we spend in devotion to him? How much time will we spend with our focus on God, who he is and what he's done for us? How much of our attention will we set aside for him? Will we give him a second thought or will we simply pass over him in the busyness of our week the church is glorious because of the work God is doing in and through her he is bringing the nations to himself the outsider by God's grace can become the insider the far off can be brought near brought close the enemy can be made right God is changing lives it's what he does And we can have confidence that when our trust is in him, that our name is in his book, that we are his, his stamp is upon us and we are counted as part of his family. Do we believe that this morning? Do we trust that that is true, that God is faithful? Do we have confidence in his power to save? And will we be bold then as we go through our week to proclaim that to those that we meet? to share that hope with those around us, to speak the wonderful truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ 
came into the world to save sinners, of whom we were such. But by God's grace, we are counted in his family. And it can be said that we were born in Zion. And finally, the church is glorious in her unity as her people worship together. Do we make an effort to partake of that? When we sing, do we sing knowing that those standing beside us singing are are there to edify and encourage us and we're there to edify and encourage them and build each other up and to support each other as we seek to live faithful lives in the kingdom? Will we be those who celebrate and sing with joy of the goodness of God together? Do we value the gathering of God's people, looking forward each week to that opportunity that we have to meet with the people of God? I trust that we do. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would take these truths and that you would plant them deep in our hearts, that we might know whose we are and who we are. We thank you that you are indeed a a God who has established and is establishing and will establish your church. You're active in power to save. We thank you that your church is yours, that we are yours, and we thank you, Lord, that you love us that you care for us. That when we had no regard for you, Lord, you sent your son to make a way that we could be made right with you, reconciled to yourself, that you've, you've made us for yourself so that we might know you and might walk with you. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to worship, hearts focused on you, that we might give you your rightful place in our lives as King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that we would be those who honour you as God and God alone, that we might come before you for you alone and not for the praise of others, but for all that you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, for the good news of the gospel that you are the God who brings the outsider in, who draws the far off near, who makes the enemy a friend. We pray that you would give us confidence in this gospel, in your gospel, that we might know assurance that our names are written in your book. Our citizenship is in your kingdom, all because of the glorious work of Christ. Might our lives be changed day after day by the indwelling of, our, of your spirit. And might we be encouraged then to go forth and to proclaim boldly the wonders of what you have done to all those around us, to proclaim this gospel hope of new life, of a new home, of a new identity. And we thank you for your church, your kingdom on earth. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn to love her more and more, that we would find strength and refreshment as we gather, that we would rejoice together, celebrating that common experience that we have where the grace of God has met our every need and brought us close to the throne of grace. We pray we would be built up as we worship and we might be equipped then to go out and to live for you in this world. 
We pray these things for your glory above all else, for you are our focus. And we ask that they might also be for our good, that we might be strengthened as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.